Spend some moment right now just offering thanksgiving to God wherever you are. Just out loud if you're comfortable, just giving praise. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you that our circumstance isn't the last answer, isn't the final answer. God, I thank you that heart conditions can be healed. That you bring death to life. That you can restore divorce. That you come in the midst of brokenness and the mess and you bring freedom and liberation and healing and wholeness. And despite ourselves, you love us. And that nothing takes that away from us. We praise you for that, God. Just the way you love, the way you move, the way you use us again and again despite ourselves. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for missing it. For forgetting it. For blowing it again and again. Thank you that you come with restoration, not with condemnation. Thank you, God, that you're big enough to to receive us with our doubts and use us with our fears. Thank you, Lord. We come with all of this thanksgiving. We come in all different walks of life and we just want to be present and honest and real. So we praise you, Lord. Thank you, God. And we give you thanks in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. That was great. Thanks for leading us this morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Alex, come on up here. There's another stool. Will you grab that for me right there? Hey, guys, I'm going to do something real quick before Bill jumps in here. I want to introduce you to someone that looks probably familiar today. This is Alex. Everyone say hi to Alex Yin. Okay, we're going to, you can sit. I'm going to sit. Um, I wanted to do this in the series is just spend some time introducing you to some of the people in our church. Um, we say this again and again. The garden isn't about a building. It's not about um, just a service. It's about the people of God. And, and it's not just a general people. It's, it's people with names and stories and testimonies. And so as we talk about resurrection life, I think it's important to show uh, just what resurrection life looks like. Um, we all experience it. We all have our stories. And this is Alex. Alex is 27 years old. He's a youth instructor at the Sunburst Youth Academy. And he's a recent chaplain assistant for the U.S. Army. Um, so I have a few questions for you. I want you to share your story. Um, you look nervous. You all right? <laughs> yeah, um, I do this for a living, but in front of God, fearing people is just, like scary for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it is scary. So, um, yeah, we, we're going we're gonna to have fun this morning. So why don't you just do this? Why don't you tell me what life was like um, years back? You, you accepted Jesus in 2010, right? And so why don't you tell me what life was like before that and just, just generalize what, what your experience growing up was like? Um. I uh, I grew up in a Buddhist home. My sisters are right here. Um, grew up in a Buddhist home, and um, always went to the Buddhist temple as a kid. And for some reason, I've, I was always scared of it. I, I was always fearful. It, it was just it was it was just wasn't for me. And um, it always scared me. And um, and it pushed me back from from any religion for that matter. And um, I grew up I grew up in Long Beach, in the city of Long Beach, in, in the hood, in, in the ghetto, in the gangs, and in the infested city that it was back then, the racial tension and all that stuff. And I got in the gangs, got in all this kind of stuff that I shouldn't have gotten that my parents don't, still, don't, still don't even know about. And, um, yeah, I was, just, I was just living a life of just loss, of um, trying to def- 
identify who I was and not knowing who I really was. So you enlisted and went into the army. Tell us about your experience in Iraq. Um, I've been deployed several times in the army, um, served as an infantryman, sniper, paratrooper um, in the army. Um, I deployed a couple years ago in Iraq. I can't remember the year, but... Yes, Jesus. Okay, more Jesus. So, um... Um, so, um, the, before I deployed to Iraq, my older brother was in the gang, and um, he got out. He got out of the gang and tried to change his life, and he, and he was a Christ follower. And he was murdered by, um, by different gang members. Um, and our family went through a lot of turmoil, and um, I wasn't a Christ follower yet. And then, um, while our family was falling down in pieces and apart, being torn apart, the army sent me a phone call and said, you're being deployed to Iraq. It was the worst possible time ever. And... Um, had a lot of hatred in my in my heart. I um I wanted to honestly just kill those guys who did it. Um, I wanted to. I, I had a lot of anger and and just killing mentality because I trained for this. And when I de when I deployed to Iraq, um, I I identify myself as a killer, as a person who will fight for righteousness, as a person who will fight for the liberty of my country and the oppressed. And I got lost in a really dark place there. Um, sadly, I had, I had to do what I did over there. Um, I, ha I had to shoot and fire at the enemy and diff the enemy of who they were. And uh, one moment was, um, was when we were driving back to our base. Right before we got into the gate to, to, to our base, um, all of a sudden, it was just raining hellfire on us, uh, on a different location near to us. And there was young Iraqi boys, young Iraqi boys from the age of probably 10 to 16. And they were being shot at. And um, <laughs> I, I was in my truck, and I, and I, and I was witnessing it. And um, I called up to hire and said, people are being shot at. I need, a, I need to go into the Phantom. And they said no because, because of politics. And, of course, me being the soldier that I am, I said, screw you. I'm going in. <laughs> and um, we went in, and um, I, I couldn't reach those boys in time, and they died. They died right in front of me. And, um, but during that time, with all the chaos, everything stopped, and two rounds were fired towards my chest where I was standing at. And then there was, there was evidence of, of bullet rounds from an antenna that, that where I was standing at, and those bullet rounds should have hit my chest and killed me. <laughs> and I didn't realize that until we got back, and one of my soldiers did, and he said, dude, you should be dead right now. And I think for the very first time in my life, I said, thank you, God, for what you just did. <laughs> so you had a... Uh very obviously difficult time in Iraq. What happened when you came back? Because there was a lot of other problems that came through with that. Would you just describe your experience coming back, Vanguard, Rock Harbor, all of that stuff? So um, I came back home from Iraq, and um, you know, proud and with a lot of pride, and I'm I'm unstoppable. I'm I'm untouchable. I'm I'm this soldier. I'm I'm this veteran, and I'm this guy, this guy who can fight, this guy can do who can do anything, and. Um, all of a sudden, 
being back home was actually being in hell. <laughs> and um, the nightmares started occurring. Um, I couldn't walk around in public around a lot of people. I, I, I was getting tense. I was getting nervous. PTSD started settling in. Depression started coming in because I couldn't find a job. <laughs> and um, I, I was truly broken. Um, I, I resort to alcohol because all my friends, you know, young young guys, they, they took me out drinking all the time. I I got drunk all the time, and they they would just laugh at me when I was getting, when I was drunk, when I was in my bitterness of drunk. They would just laugh at me because I I would do these things. I would start yelling out like Sergeant this, Sergeant that, do this, do that, and they would just laugh. And um, in in my brokenness, and I really thought that's what I deserved for what I did, for for what the service calls to do. And, um, yeah, and then I really just started giving up. I really started hitting myself. I, I, I've actually taken pills of depression. And um, all of a sudden, something just changed. A, um, an opportunity arised. I used to work with, um, with kids in, at a high school. Opportunity arised, and it was called um, Sunburst Youth Academy. And I missed putting on my uniform back on. And um, I knew before I did that I had to seek help because my family was begging me for help, begging for me to get help and all this. And I went to go see the VA and all that, and they helped me out. And it was slowly diminishing away all these problems and issues. And um, I got hired at Sunburst. It's a youth program for at-risk youth teens, kids who are dropped out. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the girls there have been molested, have been raped. Um, a lot of the boys have been in gangs, drugs, alcohol, parties. Um, and they're not all low-income kids. They're just kids all around. You'd be surprised. And I got this job, and all of a sudden, my life started changing and turning. But there's something still missing inside of me. And um, in about 2010s, when I, I started going to Rock Harbor, from a girlfriend that I was, from a girl that I was seeing, she, faith was her faith was really important to her, and for me, it wasn't that important. She was like, "Come on, you gotta go." And I was like, "All right, I'll go to make you happy for you to shut up." <laughs> Honestly, that's what it was. So I went, and um, I was sitting there, and I, I felt a lot of guilt. I, I was feeling this, this, all this guilt, but for some reason, it felt like I was safe. And I didn't like it at first, but I was soaking it all in, and I was like, no way. No way this is happening. And then a couple of days later, I, I was like, I think God is saying, I want you to follow me. I really want you to follow me. I've been with you through all of this. You have always been my child. This is the reason why you've gotten this far. And it wasn't because you're by yourself. And I started following God just like that. And then in that week's time, I was like, okay, I got to apply back to school. Because <laughs> I want to go to school. But I want to go to a regular school. Because when I tried college, it was all about parties and stuff like that. And, um, and I found out that Vanguard was right near the church that I went to. It was a Christian school. And I was like, Wow. Crazy, amazing. So I applied for Vanguard. I didn't think I was going to get accepted because I graduated high school poorly. And I got accepted to this SPS program. And then I was like, wow, how am I going to pay for this? <laughs> I was like, there's no way I can pay for this. And I, then I find out that Vanguard was a yellow ribbon school that offers veterans like me full tuition on everything there was. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah, roger that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and um, I was like, in the week's time... When I committed my life to Jesus, God just took over just like in a snap of a finger. He supplied me with all those things right away. And um, it led from that to, to, okay. 
<laughs> so yeah, it led to that, and um, me following my passion, and then all of a sudden I heard this call of being a teacher, being a, being a teacher to, to people, teaching the Gospels. I was like, oh, no way, no way, no way. You're, you're out of your mind, God. Like, you think you figured me out, but you didn't. And yeah, and he, he keeps just kicking me in the butt every time. And then I changed my major to, from, from psychology to, to religion to pastoral care. And, um, and yeah, and I was on the high road. I was really on the high road. Like, I was unstoppable with, with the Spirit. I was doing amazing things with, with God. And people were, ex- I was experiencing healing and transformation through, through the kids I worked with, through my family. I was just like, wow, this is great. And then I also had this problem going on in our relationship with my, my ex-girlfriend. She, uh, she had breast cancer. And uh, right before I declared, or right after, I declared my, my following of Christ, she had breast cancer the week after we found out. And um, through all of this, what was going on, I was by her side helping her out. With, with her treatments and all that kind of good stuff. And um, it really kind of torn us apart, the, uh, the cancer. Like, we, we, she started arguing with me, and we started, we started going back and forth with each other, and then we started realizing that we were kind of different in our ways. We were really different. And then one day she uh, gave me a phone call, and she was like, it's over, or a text, and it's over. And, uh, yeah, bad way to break up, ladies. Um, <laughs> so she sent me a text, and it was over, and my heart broke. I lost everything again. I questioned God, like, what are you doing right now? Because this is the person that you brought. This is the person you used to bring me to you. And now she's gone. I'm going to school in this school that I have no idea about. I'm, I'm just going in free-spirited, and now, and now I feel like I'm emptied. Now I feel useless. So what are you doing, Jesus? And I met, um, I met a friend here in the garden that I, at, at Vanguard, and he told me about the garden. He's like, yeah, we celebrate at a bar. We worship at a bar. I was like, wow, you, my friend, are probably not a Jesus follower. <laughs> and uh, Just kidding, just kidding. And, uh, yeah, so it, it, was a Friday, it was a Friday, and um, it was two hours before the Holy Spirit conference, and I was at work, and I was like, I need to see God somehow. I am broken. I am shattered. I am barely hanging on by my nails on this wall that I'm living in. And um, I went on the garden's website for the very first time. And it said Garden OB, and I looked to the very lower left, and it said Friday, Holy Spirit Conference at 7, 6 o'clock. And I was like, wow. I was like, wow. This, this could be it. And um, I was second-guessing all of it. I was second-guessing God. I was second-guessing this calling that I, for me to come. And I got in my car, and I drove there, and I walked in. I walked into um, to where we meet at for Third Wednesday, the Holy Spirit Conference, and I, I immediately almost walked out. And it was a, a good friend of mine now, John Razine, who kind of just grabbed me. <laughs> he was like, "Hey, who are you?" And this and that. And I was like, "I don't want to talk to you. I just want to just want to go. Like this is this is a bad idea." And then the the friend that I the friend that I knew who was Stephen Grindle, he kind of just grabbed me and sat me down, like kind of forced and sit me down. And um, the message was getting to me, and it it, it was just it, it was just aching me on. And I entered, I entered this, this time of prayer. I stood up for prayer, and um, I'm not the type of guy who likes to ask for prayer. I have a lot of pride in that issue. And the person praying for me was, was praying words. And it wasn't one of those stories where, like, oh, that was a perfect prayer. It wasn't like that at all. <laughs> I just like, no, 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 no. I felt really bad, but I didn't say anything. And then I turned around and looked at the guy, and I was like, ah, I can't, I can't leave. So I, just, I just stayed in that posture again like a penguin. And, uh, 
And then all of a sudden, when I finally really said, okay, you're not talking to me at all, God, I, uh, I, entered, I entered this moment to where I was in this dark, dark, dark black space where I felt like I was standing on nothing. Where I felt like there was nothing around me but me and him. And then I heard this voice of, I love you. I love you and what you are doing. I've brought you here. And I want you to love her and support her as a friend, as a creation that I've made. And I was shooken up by it, and I was, I was in tears shaking. And then I opened up my eyes, and I looked to my very left. It was uh, my old pastor from Rock Harbor and his wife and a good friend of mine who, who walked me through my faith in, in the Alpha course that I, that I, that I attended for, for new believers. And I sat there, I was like, how is it possible that a church that I go to, which is Rock Harbor, or was Rock Harbor, and I come into this new church that I've never been before, that I've really never heard of, how are they standing right there, right in front of me? And I was like, the saints are with me. God has sent his angels to love me, to hold on to me. And I just cried and broke down in tears. And all of that, all of that bondage and all that pain was just released in a matter of that moment. Okay, there's, yeah. I'm going to speed this up. We've got to close. But so Alex since then has been using his work as a ministry place. He's not supposed to, but he began praying with these 120 kids. At night, it turned into a Bible study. It turned into our youth group and some of our leaders going and putting on a, a big event where all of them, I think, responded and got prayer. Most of them received prayer. We've been partnering. He's using that job as a place to minister and live on mission. He's also enlisted back in now as a uh, chaplain assistant. It's the highest level. What is it, the highest level in Southern California? I, uh, I got back in the Army and um, got back in and got this call like, to do ministry in the Army. And not knowing anything at all, I got in and then about a month's time, the supervisor who, who's ahead of me, he said, I'm leaving for another position. You're going to be the head person in charge in Southern California. <laughs> so God's obviously moving him there. A uh, couple of things that are really fun. Um, we've been wanting to start an Alpha Course since we started this church. It's a, a ministry that's impacted millions of people around the world. Um, we just haven't had a leader. I've been wanting to do it from that time. I know the, the director um, in, in, in Chicago. And uh, one day he, he felt called, came to me, said, I want to start it. I'm like, great, we're going to start it. The Alpha Course leaders in Long Beach or, or of Southern California prayed over Alex. And for Long Beach, there isn't an Alpha Course really in Long Beach. So he's going to be heading up that ministry for the garden in the future, which is really exciting. But I want to end with this. What has God called you to? And what do you see God doing in Long Beach in the garden? Real fast, as, as best as you can. Um, Stan, um, I really feel that God has called me just to love people. And it's no matter where I'm at. It's, it's for me to bring the kingdom to where it belongs and for me to also be sent out. And bring the kingdom to where it belongs in people's lives. I, uh, I really feel that God's called me out to do a ministry Physically and metaphorically, even though how gross it sounds, is to clean the feet of the people that show up. It's to really just love the brokenness of people. It's to love those who are rejected, those who don't fit in, those who have been denied so many times of who they really are in the image of God. To cure sickness, to cure, to, to cure everything through Jesus. And, um, and today I just feel, I just feel just a prayer was that, that God just wants to send out his saints today. 
And, um, and I'm looking at the saints right now, <laughs> just to let you guys know. Thank you, Alex. Can we give him a round of applause? Thank you, Alex. Thank you for uh, sharing your testimony. Such, he's 27 years old. What a life he's already lived, and we're thankful for you being here. Such a servant. Bill, come on up and take us away. Man. Um, this, uh, this series that we're working on, you got me there? Okay, good. Um, it's a resurrection project, and we want in this to ask the question, what, what would it really be like to live in a world in which Jesus actually rose from the dead? You may notice that this is, in fact, the world that we live in. But it is so easy for us to forget that and to just go on about life as if it had not ever happened or as if the resurrection was really mostly about getting us to heaven uh, or as if the resurrection was really mostly about a kind of attaboy from God to his son. Good, good on you remember the deal, we're, we're in good shape. But in fact, um, the resurrection is a game changer in every possible sense of the world, word. The resurrection of Jesus Christ marks the point at which the entirety of the human creation on exit from the garden, moving in a trajectory of rebellion away from the center of its existence, begins to to turn back home again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge of the universe on which everything begins to turn again to be restored to what it was originally created for. The, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about redemption and reconciliation and restoration and, 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 and a replanting, if you will, of the garden of Eden, not us in it, but it in us. That's what the garden is about. It is not about some place to which we are intending somewhere to go. It is about the literal power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, beginning to embody us, to fill us with that same Spirit, so that it quickens even these physical mortal bodies. Um, resurrection is a restoration. So we want to think about, and, and Alex's testimony is part of the resurrection project. This here is what this resurrection project is all about. So um, we're, we're just going to snapshot. Darren, Darren gave you three, four uh, four uh, quick snapshots, postcards almost last week of, of what it looks like. I want to look into one of those with a greater degree of depth uh, this morning. It is in, in the Gospel of John, and we'll look at uh, chapter 20, and we'll pick up the story uh, seven days after Resurrection Sunday. Seven days uh, with the story of Thomas. And I'd like you to, if you've got Bibles, we've got a few. Thanks, Lalo. Anybody need a, a copy of one? If you didn't bring one, we've got uh, right up here. If you can, uh, right up here in the front. Anybody else? Uh, good, good. Thank you. All right, we are going to be on uh, on on page uh, 757. 757. We're in the Gospel of John and the 20th chapter. 
and so we're going we're gonna to pick this up. I realize we're kind of parachuting down into the story. So just to set the frame, uh, a week ago, in terms of the story, Jesus has uh, raised from the dead. Mary and uh, the, uh, James, or excuse me, Peter and John have gone to the tomb, discovered it empty. Mary has heard the gospel in a word when Jesus calls her name in a way that only he had ever called her name. And in her hearing of his name, her name on his lips, she recognizes herself uh, in, in, a, in a way that is transformative to her. Um, she, she goes back to tell the disciples who are still in the room that they left 36 hours ago uh, or so uh, and, and in this upper room, uh, and Jesus appears to them in the evening of Resurrection Sunday. So he has had a busy day. Um, he has been raised from the dead early in the morning. He has joined two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus and walked with them the entire journey. They, um, as, as night falls, begin, ask him to come and join them for meal and to spend the evening, to spend the night with them. It's too late to go on further. They recognize him in the breaking of bread. This is Luke's uh, resurrection project. And in the moment of his breaking of bread, the moment of resurrection, he disappears. So the bread that he is breaking falls and bounces on the table. And he is no longer present with them, but forever present with them. In a, an unheard of um, burst of enthusiasm, they turn around and as night falls, make their way back to Jerusalem. Whereupon, they discover that their announcement is old news. Apparently, the other guys have 4G and they got a message, a visit from Jesus 17 seconds before they too walked back into the room. Guess what, guys? You'll never believe what just happened to us out in Emmaus. And they say, that's so 17 seconds ago. You'll never believe what happened to us. Moments ago, the resurrected Christ appeared to us, not coming in through doors which were locked, or windows which were closed, but simply stepping through the barrier between spiritual and material realities and became present to us in a way in which He will always be present to us. How would you have liked to be the one disciple who was out grocery shopping at that moment? And wouldn't you know, it was Thomas. Thomas is the Charlie Brown disciple. He's the Eeyore disciple. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He only appears three times in the entire Gospel record except by, by name. He shows up by name in, a, in the lists. But only three times is anything substantial told about Thomas. In the first case, uh, it, it is in John chapter uh, 11, I believe where Jesus is on vacation. He has been driven out of Jerusalem by the pressure that will eventually see him dead. 
and he is on the far side of the Jordan. So he's outside of the political control and the reach of the, of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he and his disciples are kind of doing an R&R by the river on the other side of the Jordan when he gets news that his best friend, uh, Lazarus, has died. And the disciples immediately start to get a little twitchy because they know that Jesus is likely to rush to Lazarus' side so that he can heal him and so that Lazarus doesn't die. But much to their relief, Jesus doesn't do anything. He just waits there, apparently, for Lazarus to get good and dead. And then, two days later, he's, he, he says, now we've got to go to Lazarus. And, and the guys are arguing. No, don't you remember? We're here for a reason. They were trying to kill you, and by extension, us. So we're not, we're not going to go. We just want you to know that we have voted. We have voted. And it's like, like 12 to 1. So clearly in a democratic institution, which this band of disciples is, we're not going. And Jesus says, fine. I'm going to go. And, and he gets up and begins to walk out the room. Right? And Thomas is the guy that says, well... We might as well go with them. That's it. That's it. <laughs> we might as well go. So that's Thomas. Without Thomas, we wouldn't have the story of Lazarus raised from the dead in the New Testament. Second time, only hours before, they are in the upper room. Jesus is being Jesus, saying wonderful things. Everybody's jotting notes down. And they recognize in Jesus' language the language of the bridegroom to the bride on a wedding day. They have, have a familiar, traditional um, uh, greeting in which at the moment of betrothal, the bridegroom gives to the bride-to-be a promise that he will, upon completing a place of residence for her, return and receive her to himself where, so that she can be with him always. And you're familiar with the language. In my Father's house are many... But don't, you, you're, you're afraid. Don't be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions I, or many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you might be also. If I go to prepare a place for you, you know full well that I will come. I will receive you to myself. This is the language that every bridegroom would speak to his bride just prior to his leaving to prepare a place for her. And then he says, you know the place that I'm going and you know where I'm going. And Thomas says, uh, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, in response to Thomas's Eeyore moment, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. So, come on along. Right? Anybody glad Thomas asked the question so we got that memory verse? We now know what the way is. Right? It's Jesus. Alright, so this is the guy that's out at Vaughn's while Jesus shows up for dinner. Right? 
And, 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 and wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? Who else? Anybody know exactly how Thomas feels? You're just a day late and a dollar short. You're at the airport when your ship comes in. You know, you, know, you, you kind of have that, that, that moment. And, and, and Tom, so here we are in this story. And Thomas is just fed up, fed up with this. Because he, he, I mean, and, and, and remember, remember, this is seven days later. So what have these guys been talking about for seven days? Yada, 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 yada. resurrection, breaking bread, bread, and Thomas is just right up to here with these guys because he hasn't seen this and he's not convinced. He thinks they've all drunk the Kool-Aid. Do do, do you know? Because he's been with these guys for three years. He knows what they're like, right? So here we are. Um, uh, uh, Thomas says at the end of this this moment, um, uh, um, verse 24 of chapter 20. Sorry, Faith, I think I started you in the wrong place. Uh, now, uh, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were in the house again. Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting. And believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Blessed you, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Isn't that amazing? Now, we're going to just walk back through this. Uh, I, I want to be honoring of your time. But as we, as we sit with this story, so we've got Jesus. Um, uh, now, now uh, notice He's appeared. He is from visible sight gone. Thomas comes into the room. They tell him that Jesus has appeared. And he says what? I'm not going to believe it unless I put my finger through the wound in His hands put my hand through the gash that the spear opened. In other words, Thomas is just being as graphic as he can be. You guys, I, I can't, I, this does not compute. I have no place in the hard drive to file this. Doesn't make sense. A week later, they're there. This time Thomas is present. And Jesus, once again, doors being locked, shows up. He steps through the opening between the spiritual realm and this physical realm. And the rest of them, are they, 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 they kind of do a soft fade into the background until there's just two people in the room. Jesus and Thomas. And listen to what he says. Here are my hands. Put your finger in. Now, wait a minute. Where was Jesus when Thomas said that? He had, from their appearance, disappeared. But he heard Thomas's 
doubt. Put your hand here on the side. Thomas, in that moment, gets Jesus and declares, and I need you to notice this, in the first declaration of this in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is not just His Lord, but His God. Isn't that, and why? Well, because he understands that Jesus has done something. That is, that He has overcome the boundary, the barrier between the material and the physical realms. And the earth is beginning its journey back home again. The material is no longer in rebellion against the spiritual. The, 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 the resurrection uh, it brings us to a place in which the material is not simply overcome, but is redeemed. How do I, why do I say that? I want you to notice something. What does the resurrected body of Jesus still have? Open wounds. Not scars. Open wounds. Now what's the point of that? Well, I think that's the resurrection project, don't you? Do you have any open wounds? Do you have any places in which you could drive a Mack truck through? The brokenness of body, the brokenness of soul, the brokenness of spirit, the brokenness of relationship, these great gaping wounds in which the material is in abject rebellion against the health and wholeness of the spiritual realm. Anybody have any wounds? And we're counting on them to be healed. And Jesus is saying, why heal when you can restore and redeem and reconcile and they now become part of the beauty of you as my resurrection project. They become a testimony, not of life, but of the victory of life over death. Death is no longer the default condition of the universe. Life is. This is what He invites us to in this moment. When we see this resurrection body, this body that is suited for the kind of existence that we were built for in the first place, to transition fluidly and freely between the physical and the spiritual realms. It is not a body that is ephemeral. It's not a ghost. You'll notice that in virtually every appearance of Jesus after His resurrection, He wants to eat something. Which, by the way, makes him my kind of savior. Anybody else? <laughs> We're good. Okay. Uh, sometimes he brings his own snack. I, I, I just love that. Anyway, um, we may get a chance to think about that in a couple weeks. But, uh, but with that, he, what's he trying to do here? He's trying to say, this is not a spirit. This isn't a ghost. This isn't a free-floating, unanchored, untethered existence. This is a body that can eat, that has wounds, that now no longer define it as dead, but are part of the new frame of beauty and life. Now that's very hard for us because a lot of us have had wounds that we cannot imagine being embraced and part of beauty. 
That's the resurrection project. The abuse, the betrayal, the shattered lives are not going to simply be patted on the head and say, they're there. That very brokenness will become testimony to the power of the resurrected Christ. You will never not have those wounds. But instead of giving testimony to death, they will give testimony to life. Notice how he ends this. Because you have seen, he says, you believe. Blessed are those who believe not having seen. Do you understand what he's doing here? He's saying to Thomas, get on your horse, bud. You've got a story to tell. People will see because you have seen. People will believe because you have believed. People will get me because you have gotten me. You now are part of my resurrection project. You now are part of the testimony of wonder that wounds can be part of beauty. That God is on the move. Let's pray. Lord, um, we sit with this stunningly powerful story. And... um, it's just, it's just, it's just overwhelming uh, because we still live, we still live uh, as 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 night is fading and dawn is coming. We find ourselves so often like Thomas, overwhelmed by our own wounds. We find ourselves, oh Lord, so often convinced because of the relentlessness of death that it will have final say. But Lord, um, in this story we recognize uh, that you, uh, you can do this. And uh, you want us to be part then of the testimony of resurrection. Not as an historical event happening 2,000 years ago to a crucified Savior, but as a current event ongoing reality that life will triumph over death in any of death's horrific forms. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Um... As Pete and the team come to lead us in a few minutes or are already here, I'm going to just ask you to remain heads bowed for just a couple minutes. Um, I know our community at least well enough to know that there are some of you who walked in this morning with wounds um, that you desperately want to be, to be fixed, to be healed. Scars would be better than what you've got. And um, I'm going to invite you to consider another possibility. 
that is that the resurrection project is about redeeming, not always about fixing. It's about restoring brokenness. Not so that it's not broken necessarily anymore, but so that it is embraced as part of life. And I don't know how that's going to work out in your life. I don't know how that works itself out in your journey.